Now let's start by reading just the first three verses of this, this epistle. I always like to say when I first went to seminary, I was so dumb I thought the epistles were the wives of the apostles. But epistle is just a fancy word for letter, right? Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, writing this letter to, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, this is Christian life, grace and peace, be multiplied to you in or through or by means of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining, everything needed to life and godliness, to a godly lifestyle as a fruit of salvation, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence, or you could render that excellent glory. You know, every year there are a plethora of books and DVDs and seminars and conferences on the topic of spiritual growth for Christians. And some of that content is is helpful, no doubt. But some of it falls into one or two categories. It, It tends to dumb down the whole process, and kind of divorce the mind from spiritual growth and reduce it down to emotions and sensations and experiences and impressions. And other times, some of the best-selling books on spiritual growth are just full of of fads or gimmicks that uh, nobody's ever heard of before and you can't really find in Scripture, but because it's new stuff nobody's heard of before, uh, it tends to sell well. And so as far as the growth is concerned, uh, the publisher and the author's uh, financial status grows, but um, a year or two later, nobody's reading their stuff anymore. Now, the good news is I don't have any books, DVDs, seminars, or conferences to sell this morning. But uh, what I do have is uh, a key dynamic about your spiritual progress and my spiritual progress that we're going to see in the first verses here of Second Peter. Let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word. Whoops, there's our our guys, active military people we know of, directly or indirectly. We want to pray for our military folks and our peace officers and our firefighters as we teach, as we study uh, t- the word today, and as we pray we'll be teachable to God's word. So uh, uh, stand, if you will. Uh, I want you to lead us in prayer in that direction, okay? Thank you. Uh, Jim and Jan, before we... Uh, eat our spiritual meal here, I like to try to warm up our capacity for abstract thought to its fullest extent. And so um, I want to show you this cartoon. Now this is uh, like a, a middle school kid or a or high school student, uh, probably the first uh, week of the new semester after spring vacation, and he's going to talk about how uh, he spent his summer vacation, right? Now here's the principle, and this is true in scripture reading and just any time you interact or communicate with anyone. Uh, speakers and or writers don't mean what they say. They mean what they mean by what they say, the way they say it or write it. So if I say I have a frog in my throat this morning, I don't mean I have a small amphibian in my neck, Krista. You, that's a, an idiom. You know what I mean. But on, in this case, I want you to focus on the word spent, how I spent my 
summer vacation. And here's what the young man uh, said in his speech. $36 for movie tickets, $12 for comics, $36.42 for pizza, $19.74 for ice cream, $22 for bike repairs, $8 for a fake tattoo, and $14.95 for new flip-flops. Now, I didn't say that was wildly funny, maybe mildly amusing, and so I said it's funny with quotes because of the difference in the meaning between the word spent on the one hand and the word spent on the other. Typically, Lori, when you see how I spent my summer vacation, we back in maybe they don't do this anymore, but in my day when you came back from summer vacation, typically in a new class, you'd talk about how you spent your time, where you went, you went to grandma's house or Washington, D.C. or whatever you happened to do. But in fact, he interpreted that to mean spent as far as how he spent his money during his summer vacation. And that's at the, at the center of what I'm going to attempt with this, let's call it the spirit's unction. That's what theologians say. We all, we need help as we teach the inspired text, but we need his unction. You know, that's the fancy word for it. And that's what you were wanting to say, right, Stan? Yeah. Uh, I, the Lord knew what you meant. Uh, so, uh, today in First Peter, we're going to talk about and think about, uh, knowledge as opposed to knowledge. Spent as opposed to spent, knowledge as opposed to knowledge, or you're going to have to really stretch your, your, your brain today because you're going to learn two new words from the original Greek text, gnosis as opposed to epinosis. There's a big difference, and we'll show you what that is, and it, it can make you or break you in your spiritual life. Uh, last week, we began our series on Second Peter by thinking about the essential components of the Christian faith, the faith that the apostles held, that they passed on to the next generation, these readers, and that we hold today. And we called the essentials the super seven, the terrific two rooted in the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. I think the core essential truth claims of Christianity that transcend generations, cultures, colors, countries, and denominations is who God is generally, who Christ is specifically, who we are spiritually, what Christ has done for us on the cross and through his resurrection, what we must do to access that, salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, what Christ will do, and Christians debate the details of Bible prophecy, but the one thing we all have on our charts is a literal second advent, whether it's pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill, or pan-mill. You know, a lot of Christians uh, just are pan-millennial. It's all going to pan out in the end, and I don't care about the details, right? Uh, that's the ter- that's the terrific uh, seven, or super seven, and here's the terrific two. It gets more specific than this, I know that, and that's why James and I call that job security, right? But basically, uh, as you abide in Christ, you ought to be loving the Lord your God, and loving one another, other people as yourself, in concentric circles. It's easy for us to sit here and love the people in the Congo. Harder for you to love your family in biblical senses. Okay? Now think about this. Uh, today we're going to get up in a Bible study helicopter, look at the whole book that's called Synthesis, and um, we're going to talk about the difference between knowledge and knowledge, or gnosis and epinosis. But the Apostle Peter walked with Jesus physically. Is that a mind blower? 
I mean, to walk around with Jesus of Nazareth for three years and watch everything he did 24-7, basically, Peter had that experience beginning in about 30 A.D. But as you read First Peter and Second Peter, you are fast-forwarding at least, Genesis, about 35 years later. And so that impetuous uh, young fisherman uh, is now the one of the elder statesmen of the first-generation church. He's a five-star general apostle over the capital C church, serving under the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, last year, in 2017, we studied First Peter, right? And now, in the beginning of the new year, 2018, we're going to study Second Peter. So let's say just a word about the relationship between those two books. And uh, if I could simplify it a little bit, let's just say we've got the same human author, Peter, for both books. We've got the same divine author, God the Holy Spirit, inspires this text. We've got the same original readers. Uh, we have a different setting in time, a different emphasis, a different focus in the two books. In First uh, Peter, which was written about 64-65 A.D., he's writing to an urgent crisis setting where the Christians in Central Asia Minor, we'd call it today, Central Turkey and Northern Turkey, were facing intense persecution. Now watch this. Historically, there were no empire, Roman Empire-wide persecutions against Christianity until the very end of the first century, but there were localized, sporadic persecutions all over the empire in the first century, and Peter's readers were in the middle of that kind of thing, and that's in fact the reason they had left their homes in and around Syria to be in Turkey. So he's writing, he's kind of putting a fire out. He's talking about comfort for suffering saints. Be aware of the fact that because of God's sovereignty, pain has purpose, even if you're not quite sure what the purpose is uh, at any given moment. In the second uh, epistle, this uh, book we call Second Peter, uh, he's writing in late 66, early 67, maybe even uh, into early 68, just before he's executed in Rome. And he's dealing with a whole different thing. Same uh, readers, but the crisis has gone away. The r- local persecution has stopped. It's kind of how much resources and the mindset of the local governor decided whether or not they're persecuting Christians. Eventually they figure out they're not really causing us that much trouble. It's the rapists and the murderers we need to try to arrest. So the crisis has passed, and so rather than giving comfort to suffering saints, which, hey, listen, Jared, Gerald, you know, next time you're really suffering emotionally, First Peter is a good book for you, okay? Because that's what it's written about. Uh, in general, however, Second Peter is a good book for any Christian. Now, as Pam Cox, the resident theologian at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, once said, every Christian we know is either in a crisis just coming out of one, or just about to go into one. So you're going to need First Peter quite often in your Christian life. But you're always going to need Second Peter because it urges caution concerning spiritual deviation. Beware of poison in the pulpit or around the pulpit. And there are false teachers wanting to get into the churches and totally redefine Christianity, and he warns them about that and some other dynamics as well. Now, boom. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. We, we told you that 
invariably the biblical books have a purpose statement somewhere in them that sums up the essence of what they're trying to say. Sometimes it's at the very beginning, sometimes it's at the end, sometimes it's right in the middle. And the purpose statement of the book of First Peter, the one we looked at last year, says, Beloved, he's talking to believers, I urge you as aliens, uh, as those who have been forced to leave Syria because of persecution and now face persecution where you've moved, um, and strangers to abstain from epithumia. Epithumia just means strong desire to do something, but you've got the adjective there, fleshly strong desires to do the wrong thing, including, and, and we tend to think of sexual sin when we think of lust, but it just means a strong desire to do the wrong thing. And what they're being tempted to do is doubt, pout, and drop out. That's why he says, keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on obeying, trusting and obeying the Lord, which wage war against your soul, against your spiritual vitality. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles and non-believers, so that in the thing in which they slander you, your Christian faith, as evildoers, they may realize you're a better worker, a better neighbor, a better citizen because of your faith, not the other way around, because of your good deeds as they observe them end up coming to faith, glorifying God in the day of visitation. Now flip to the back of Second Peter, and we'll look at the purpose statement of that book. And um, yeah, Mike Palovic last week was right to uh, remind us that verse 14 really is referring directly back to 13, which talks about our hope that eventually God's going to fix the universe by replacing it with one where sin will not be permitted. It will have been permitted in our time, defeated and quarantined, and will be in the best of all possible worlds after what's described here in Second Peter 3, after what Revelation 21 and 22 talks about. According to his promise, and it's going to happen, but not on our time schedule, on his, we're looking for a whole new universe where there's not going to be any sin or cancer or child molesters or pornography or abortions or anything like that. And we'll have a benign dictator, which is the best government you can have. It's most efficient. We'll have a perfectly uh, righteous, just leader, uh, and there won't be any more elections, so we won't have to argue about the elections anymore. And I'm all for elections, by the way, especially if I get to vote early and often on the same day. That's always a good thing. Therefore, beloved... See the beloved again? He's talking to them generally, summing up the essence of the book. Since you look for these things, since you're being transformed by a heavenly hope, be relevant now. Be diligent to be found by him when he comes back uh, in peace, getting along with him and other people, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as opportunity for salvation for everybody else, just as our beloved brother, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these kind of things, in which Paul's letters, some things are hard to understand. Watch this. In the Bible, there are some things hard to understand, but the main, the main things are plain things, and they get repeated a lot. So that's a very important principle. Uh, James and I like the idea that some's hard to understand because that gives us job security. You're always going to need teachers, but you also need to. You look at. You should look at all Bible teachers like I look at drumsticks. Okay. What do you do with a drumstick? Do you get, are you offended when there's a bone in there? Are you surprised when there's a bone in there? Now, little kids will because the only chicken they eat now are chicken McNuggets. So if they, if you handed them a, a drumstick, they'd be offended. But n- normal people realize 
to enjoy the drumstick, you just eat around the bone and put the bone on the plate. So every Bible teacher you know has some quirks, except for me and James. We have absolutely no quirks. But, uh, yeah, so something's hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable will distort. Can you say Jehovah's Witnesses or groups like that? Hare Krishna, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Don't go the way of popular heresies so that you will not be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness to the essentials of the faith. But keep on going, keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So go back to first, second Peter chapter one. Uh, yeah, they, they're different, uh, books, but same author, humanly speaking, divinely speaking, same original readers, but two different emphases. And if you keep that in mind, it'll help you understand the book better. Just one little word about the relationship between second Peter and Jude. Jude's written a couple of years after second Peter. It quotes directly from second Peter talking about the similar kind of dangers posed by popular and slick motivational speakers who pose as theologians, and they're really not. They're denying the essentials of the faith. Now let's talk about, the, get up in the helicopter, Jason, look at the whole book of Second Peter. If you do that, I think it looks something like this based on the way he arranges his thought. Think of the book as uh, uh, an arch, with a, as a, a three-story building. So chapter one is talking about holiness. Chapter two is talking about the dangers of heresies that deny the essentials morally or doctrinally. Chapter three is talking about our ultimate hope we're going to get for to eternity, to a perfect universe where we won't have all this stuff we have to deal with now. And then he, we just read the, the purpose statement, which is like an arch, is uh, what orders his thought generally. So let's work our way up from the first floor to the second floor, third floor. Look at uh, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1. Grace and peace, this is Christian life, grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's uh, now You guys are from Oklahoma originally, right, Jan? So you know that y'all is singular, all y'all is plural. Uh, and in Greek, you actually write a y'all one way and you write all y'all a different way. So we know this is plural. Grace and peace be multiplied to all y'all. In the epinosis, that's going to be important in a minute, of God and of Christ Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now when you say, I'm good and ready to go wash my car, uh, or the last week when it was so cold, uh, somebody might walk into the building and say, it's nice and warm in here. That's called a hendiadis, when you use two words connected by an and to say one thing. You're not saying, when I'm good and ready. So I might get, I might be ready to wash my car, but I'm not good enough to wash my car yet. You're not saying that. When you say I'm good and ready, when I'm good and ready, you're saying when I'm fully ready. Which for me is like never. I keep hoping David's gonna come and wash my car for me. I'm too lazy to wash it myself. Um, when as you say it's nice and warm in here, it is nice in here. When Ron remembers to pay the electric bill, you know, uh, and it was a lot warmer in here than it was outside last Sunday and the Sunday before. But we don't mean, boy, it's a nice building and it's warm in here. When we say it's nice and warm, we mean it's comfortably warm. Isn't that what that means? That's a hendiadis. And you have two of those here. 
just uh, no extra charge. Aren't you glad you came to church today to find stuff out this out? Um, if I can find that, yeah, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness to a godly life. That's Hendiatus. I'm granted, and that's Zoe, and that's um, uh, uh, yeah, that's Zoe. That's spiritual life and and godliness. So he, He's given us as believers, everything we need to be what he wants us to be, right, or to become, uh, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And I don't think Peter is thinking, we called us by his glory, and he also called us by his excellence. That's hendiatus. That's, I'm good and warm, uh, good and ready. It's nice and warm in here. By his glorious excellence. Not a huge difference, but I think it kind of goes from a little fuzzy to a little bit more focused. That's me. That's just a judgment call. Look at verse 4. For by these he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises about now and forever, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by epithumia, lust to do the wrong thing, to think the wrong thing. It can be sexual, but it can be doctrinal. Now for this very reason also, now that you've embraced Salvation through faith in Christ by God's grace, applying all diligence in your faith, apply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. That's not epinosis, that's part of the raw material. That's gnosis, we'll talk about that in a minute. And in your knowledge, that's gnosis again, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. He's talking about characteristics that ought to be ours, and he says, as we're growing spiritually, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Uh, if you unplug a refrigerator, it doesn't become a rowboat. It's still a refrigerator. It's just not working well, and all your food will spoil if you keep it unplugged for two weeks or something like that, and then you have a problem. But all of this stuff is supposed to happen in or through the epinosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's holiness in a nutshell. Heresy means false teaching. Look at chapter 2, 1 through 3. But watch out. Not everybody who wears a collar or has reverend in front of his name or doctor in front of his name uh, is teaching you the true stuff. But false prophets also arose among the people in the Old Testament era, just as they will also be false teachers among you in the New Testament period who will secretly, they're not going to say, I'm a, I'm a heretic, I'm going to come to your church and ruin it for you. They don't say that. Or I've got this book or seminar or YouTube channel, I want to destroy your faith. They'll secretly, stealthily introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So when you're doubting the deity of Christ or the resurrection, you're denying who he really is, bringing swift destruction upon themselves from a spiritual point of view. They're zeros in God's point of view. They may be heroes uh, in the popular culture, however. Many will follow their sensuality. They're going to draw a crowd. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with their false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God's not unaware. He's not asleep with the switch. Uh, They will get what they deserve, but they will cause a lot of damage before that happens. Now, chapter 3, we go from holiness, heresy, to hope. Now, hope in the Bible does, the Greek word is elpis, not Elvis, that's different. Elpis, it sounds like Elvis. But biblical hope is faith directed forward. It's an anticipation of good things God has promised us. And so, 
I bet James's friend that he talked about probably is motivated by that. He's appreciating what he does have, looking at the half full stuff, and knowing the the best is yet to come, right? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter. The first one was called First Peter. I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. That's Peter and the others that are still alive. Many of them have been martyred by this point when he writes this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, it's only going to get worse, more confusing. Plus, we've got the uh, modern communication mechanisms where some guy in um, wherever you want to be, Nepal or uh, Minneapolis, can broadcast their, their stuff all over the world, literally. This is a TV studio you're carrying around with yourself. You realize that? Among other things. Mockers in the last days will come with their mocking, following after their own strong desires, and maybe sexual, maybe other things, just to be rich and famous or powerful, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? This idea of Jesus coming back is ridiculous. It hasn't happened. It's been 2,000 years. You know, the seminal promises about Jesus were given to Abraham in 2000 B.C. It took 2,000 years for the first advent to happen on God's schedule perfectly on time. From our point of view, it seemed like a long time. We're about as far away from the first coming uh, as Abraham was uh, in that sense. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it's right around the corner, but we'll see. I'm not going to set any dates. Where is the promise of his coming? It's not on our schedule. I've never seen a resurrection, so I don't believe in a resurrection. That's the argument against resurrection, by the way. That's it. I've never seen one. I don't believe there are such things. Okay, great. Um, I think that uh, God has revealed himself more than adequately, and uh, by his unction we have seen and believed. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, uniformitarianism, everything continues just like from the beginning. Uh, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time had been destroyed, flooded by water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being preserved for the final judgment, which he talks about in verses 10 and following. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief without any announcements. Uh, suddenly when it happens in which the heavens the present universe will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since it's all going to burn, don't live your life as if stuff is the ultimate good because it's not. Cadillacs all end up in junkyards, every single one, eventually, right? Now, in the meanwhile, if you've got to use Cadillac at a good price, you know, let me know because I could use it. What sort of people should you be? You should not be worshiping your stuff, for one thing. It's not who dies with the most stuff wins. That's not the way it works. Uh, in holy conduct and godliness. But you ought to be looking for and hastening and anticipating and, and rejoicing in uh, God's future, the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens, the present universe, will be destroyed. But according to his promise, and you can read about it in Revelation 21 and 22 in some detail, we're looking for a new heaven, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. So that's the book in a nutshell. Three chapters, three themes under the umbrella of grow in grace and knowledge. Don't fall to the heretics. Don't give up hope and keep on walking with the Lord, right? So we're going to use that as kind of our emblem here that uh, every week as, as we begin and talk about holiness, heresy, and hope. Now, 
both spiritual growth and initial salvation is all about relationship. And so we're going to look at a mini video about relationship and then move on from that, that point. Okay. Yeah, you know what? Um, you start on the Christian chain, uh, train, no matter how good you are or how bad you are, through entering, entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's all about relationship. And the spiritual life is all about a relationship with a ruler who's first our savior. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, the gospel means good news, but the good news means nothing apart from the bad news of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, you've not only broken God's standards, you break your own standards at your worst. And we, let me include myself there, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I know we're not supposed to use that word, the yes word anymore, but that's the that's where the Holy Spirit starts. He convicts you of your own uh, uh, imperfections, your own depravity, righteousness. Uh, there's probably going to be more people miss heaven because they cling to their righteousness than they cling to their sins. You know, this is the only pe- bad people in the Gospels are the religious leaders because they are so dedicated to the proposition they can save themselves by keeping the Old Testament law. They don't need a savior. And plus, he's messing up the political connection, connections with Rome, and that means money. And they had to get rid of Jesus because they wouldn't let go of their own self-righteousness. And then judgment means you, you're going to have a one-on-one personal uh, uh, connection, or I should say accountability, uh, before God. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And once the Holy Spirit convinces you that you have broken the rules, it's your fault, you can't fix it by being more religious, and you you're going to lose when you're accountable before God, then now the good news of the gospel makes so much sense and the Spirit works uh, so that through the eyes of faith we can say, yes, Lord, I, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. I can't fix it, but you can and I want you to because you died for my sins and rose again. That's saving faith. That's active, receptive trust because Christ died for our sins We don't have to die in our sins. When he finishes the work of redemption, he says, it is finished. Three words in English, one week word in the uh, Greek text of John 19.30, tetelestai means paid in full, mission accomplished, right? Jesus died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. Uh, A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven or from Alabama to heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can, okay? The reason we changed the lyrics in he came from heaven to earth to show the way, to be the way. We change it from show to be because all the other major world religions claim to show you ways to get whatever they define as heaven, and sometimes it's an earthly thing, like for Buddhists, Theravada Buddhists. But uh, Jesus claimed to be the way. He claimed to be the issue and the issue of eternal life, and you're daring to trust in him. That's that's not easy. There's no such thing as easy believism. You can't do that unless the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, and you've got to be insane to believe something like that. And yet, but it's it's actually true. It's ultimate reality, isn't it? So we don't have you sign a card or walk an aisle or promise us stuff. But if you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm praying the Holy Spirit will open your heart to see and believe. And it's all about entering into a relationship with the One. Who's done all the work for you? Salvation is of the Lord. Uh, you're the savee. He's the savior. Uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. That's a synecdoche. You've heard about hendiadis today and synecdoche. Talk about I've got 
20 head of cattle? Does the guy have heads floating on the wall or what? That's described the whole cow by referring to part of it. The blood of Christ is a synecdoche for the bloody, sacrificial, atoning death he died on the cross. Are we saved by the blood, by the, by the cross, or by Christ? All three. The work of Christ on the cross. The cross is where it happened. It was a bloody, violent, horrific thing. But he who knew no sin became a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So saving faith is a rational act. It's not a meritorious work. It's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. But the book of Second Peter isn't written to unbelievers. It's written about certain unbelievers trying to mess up the church. But it's written to promote spiritual growth. And spiritual growth is not just obeying a list of rules. It's it's recognizing and responding to the Lordship of Jesus, who is your Savior and your best friend and your God. So you're relating to Him. So of course you obey the rules. It's just a function of your relationship. So even though we're going to talk now about gnosis and epinosis for 15 whole minutes and talk about thinking and the mind, um, this isn't a mechanical thing where you just memorize things and check off things off a list. Okay, So let's talk about what he describes. Go back to verses 2 and 3. Uh, Christian life, grace, and peace be multiplied to you. In the epinosis, in the full heart knowledge and convictions that you have about God and Jesus Christ, seeing that God has given you everything you need so you can be or become what he wants you to be, pertaining to a a godly lifestyle as the fruit of salvation and effect of it, through, by means of the true knowledge, the full epinosis, that's epinosis, the full heart conviction of him, who called you into his glorious excellence. Uh, lack of time, I'm not going to compare the salutations of the two epistles, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Just don't have too much enough time to do that. I want to focus on the bottom line here. This key mechanism of spiritual growth. So put your thinking caps on. Um, let me give you a paraphrase of verses 2 and 3. May Christian life, grace, and peace be multiplied to you. Ben Harrington or uh, Doug Strange or uh, Henry Ward, uh, by means of, in and through the epinosis, the full heart knowledge of God in Jesus our Lord, seeing that, consistent with the fact that he's given us everything we need to actually pull this thing off, live a God-honoring life, but it's going to happen through a heart conviction of the truth, a full knowledge, not just mental assent, but full heart trust, epinosis, of whom who called us to his glorious, by his glorious excellence, his greatness. In other words, to fully access Christian life, grace, and peace, to really meet your potential spiritually as a believer, you need epinosis. You need full heart knowledge of truth that forms the basis of your convictions, your priorities, your choices. It's a knowledge that goes way beyond uh, awareness of biblical facts, okay? Let me give you a diagram. Gnosis and epinosis. Gnosis is being aware of information. Epinosis is being, uh, is embracing information as truth because it's true and now you're going to live consistently with it. I'll give you an example. When I first met Debbie Walker as a, as a junior, we actually sat near each other in English, but we had very little contact. 
I noticed her, but I would, was too afraid to talk to her, you know. As a lowly golfer, I was the lowest thing on the food chain. I wasn't a football player, I was a golfer, and back then that was not good. Um, the next year, in our senior year, like the last six weeks, we, we sat next to each other in English in our senior year. And, uh, you know, I asked her, our first date was to go to the Port Arthur Library to do research on a research paper. So I should have warned her right there. And so at that point, I had a certain amount of gnosis about Debbie Walker. I was aware of who she was and had some information. She's really smart, really good looking, uh, really a lot of fun. Uh, and it hasn't changed. Uh, I have to say that technically, you know, make points. But, uh, and she's out of town babysitting now. She's a grandmother. People say, you know, doesn't it freak you out to be a grandfather? I said, that doesn't bother me at all. But being married to a grandmother, that freaks me out. I'm still wrapping my brain around that one. But yeah, so up to that point, I had a certain amount, a growing amount of gnosis, kind of awareness, facts about Debbie. But um, golly, two years later, we were married, right? That's epinosis. And now 44 years later, 44 and a half years later, three days, two and a half minutes and five seconds, uh, I've got full epinosis of Debbie Walker. So gnosis is being aware about information about anything, including about God, Jesus, justification, sanctification, the Ten Commandments, whatever you want. Epinosis of that same information is where you embrace that content as truth, which is held as personal convictions that form the basis for spiritual growth, spiritual transformation. It forms your priorities, your categories, your worldview. Gnosis is like knowing about flying based on books, movies, and riding on airplanes. That's gnosis. My dad was a pilot. He flew a small plane for his business. I flew all over the southeast United States with him during the summers and even actually with the co-pilot sometimes when once you get it landing and takeoff is the hard part, Krista. Once you get up in the air, you got this little line. If you're on the right seat, you can kind of just keep the thing on the line and you probably won't plastic crash the plane. Uh but uh, for I've got only gnosis about flying an airplane. Epinosis of flying isn't just knowing about flying because you read about it or rode on an airplane. It's knowing about flying based on actual experience in flying real airplanes. Uh, all that stuff is consistent with good information, gnosis you've been given on ground school, in ground school. But it's not the same thing as just knowing about flying, right? Gnosis is mental awareness of Bible doctrines, principles, commands, promises as data by which you're not ignorant anymore. You're informed about those things. But if that's where you stop, you're not going to grow spiritually, and you're going to sit, soak, and sour in a place like this. Uh, and you'll find a reason not to like it. Look at 1 Corinthians 8. Just to look at the principle here. We're not talking about Bible trivia and behavior modification. We're talking about truth that transforms you from the inside out, right? And you're going to find out a lot of the picky rules that a lot of Christians hold that take the Bible seriously aren't biblical. So that frees you up from that thing too. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, the big deal if, if uh, meat was sacrificed to idols before it was sold in the meat market in Corinth, is it okay to eat it? And Paul said it's perfectly fine to eat it. It doesn't affect you at all. But if you are queasy about doing it, don't violate your conscience. You know, don't make yourself feel bad. But uh, and, and I won't force it down anybody's throat. But technically, there's no such thing. Idols aren't really real, you know. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, you know that we all have knowledge. We all have our opinion. 
Knowledge. And that's not epinosis, that's gnosis. Now, why is he going into epinosis and gnosis? Here's why. That one word, I mean, that, those two words, those two ideas, are typically translated by the same English word. In first, in second Peter, you've got the word knowledge as the English translation for epinosis in one verse and two verses later, you're, you're translating the same, the a different word, gnosis, with the same English word. That's the reason you've got to make this distinction. And that's the reason that, see, I, you know a little bit about the original language. You can look at the x-ray and you know which one and it jumps out at you. But watch this. Here's the principle. First Corinthians 8. Knowledge, gnosis, just knowing about flying from books makes arrogant. I know more about flying than this guy who doesn't care or doesn't know anything about flying. Um, but love edifies. It makes arrogant. It puffs up. Not in every case, but it can and it tends to. So sometimes the, the guy who thinks he's the most selfish person in the group is just somebody full of gnosis, Bible trivia facts about Obadiah. And in fact, we actually do this to each other. I know more about Obadiah than you are, so I'm smarter than you are, more spiritual than you are, and more righteous than you are. Really? I don't think it works like that, necessarily. Okay? So gnosis is mental awareness of stuff, information about good stuff, God, Jesus, etc., Epinosis is much more than mere mental awareness of facts. It's personal appropriation of truth about who Jesus is, what he did, his saviorhood, his lordship, etc. And it transforms us. It's the basis of our convictions, our whole worldview. Uh, in other words, rather than just the head and the intellect being involved and then a dead stop as an end in itself, Epinosis, what God really wants in us, is information, truth, facts that move in and through our head, our mind, through our heart, our will, not the pump that pushes the blood around, but your mind and your will that you embrace as truth and binding on you. Gives you a whole new set of spectacles you use to look at yourself and everyone else. Um, Just in passing... Uh, if we had more time, you want to do some uh, supplementary work. You know, it's got, remember the the kid in, in algebra class, the teacher would say, "All right, before next time class, do uh, do problems uh, one through thirty, but just the odd numbered ones, okay?" And then you have a kid in the back of the class. Is it okay if I do the even ones too? Didn't you hate that when people did that? that I mean, uh, it's a free country. Do them all if you want to, but don't ask the teacher. Oh, yeah, in fact, it, I actually had that in algebra class once, and I. I'm, I'm, I've got a slow temper. I don't get mad. I'm not a violent person. But I wanted to kill that guy. Because that literally happened. Mr. Allen, Mr. Allen, can we do both the even and the odds? And he said, yeah, Jimmy, it's good. In fact, let's everybody do it. And like, he barely, that kid spent the next two weeks in the hospital. It was a bad thing for him. Now, we, we all wanted to kind of trip him up. Even the golfers got mad at that guy. Not just the football players. But uh, if you want to make extra points with me, Make sure it's not just gnosis for you. Make sure it's epinosis. Look at what First Peter 2, uh, 1 through 3 says about taking in God's word. And then uh, compare it to what he's saying here. And let me reread this again. Christian, grace and peace be you. I want it to be multiplied to you in your life, but it's going to have to happen through you having epinosis, not just information, but transformation, uh, 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 convictions, about the truth about Jesus and God and holiness and heresy and hope. Uh, he says, God's giving you everything you need. 
But it happens through the true epinosis, not just in information, but transforming truth. Now, gnosis is a necessary step in the process, okay? And occasionally you hear the great evangelical culture saying, you know, all those churches that teach, teach the Bible, they're so, they're so sixties, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. Bible teaching gets a bad name. It's stale, it's boring, it's not relevant. No, you're stale, you're boring, you're not relevant. You're just getting information, you're not transforming it in your heart as transforming truth. It's always exciting to get new slants on this stuff because it changes, it just fine tunes your prescription on your, on your glasses, the way you look at reality. So, I think the overall theme, the message of Second Peter, I always like to try to sum them up in a statement. It's called a central idea statement. Uh, uh, um, E.D. Hirsch of Yale called it a, uh, uh, a genre statement, just kind of a theme statement. I think Peter, Second Peter is saying a Christ-centered hope about the future should motivate believers. Put your name in the blank. Zane Britton, you know, uh, um, who else? David Stribling. Uh, a Christ-centered hope should motivate believers, like those and, and those of the rest of us who are believers, uh, now in this life, not just sit around and wait for the future to happen, to embrace a lifestyle of holiness. I like to call that wholeness. This isn't like coming up with a bunch of picky rules. You know, if it tastes good, you can't eat it. Uh, you can you can eat stuff that tastes good. Just don't eat too much of it. Okay, it's just all in moderation, right? Including moderation and to avoid the heresies of false teachers. So that's essentially what we're going to see. Now again, Christian hope is looking forward to something we know is going to happen because it's a conviction. We know it's going to happen. Being with Christ and ultimately enjoying a whole new perfect universe forever. We're not there yet, but boy, we yearn for it and we look forward to it. And that should cheer us up. That also means, among other things, that if you're a Christian, you are now doing TDY, which is military talk for temporary duty on planet Earth, awaiting PCS. What's PCS? Permanent change of station. We're all TDY awaiting PCS in heaven too, present heaven, and the new heaven, new earth ultimately. And with that in view, we ought to have a lust for living. The word lust, epithumia, just means a strong desire to do something. used to hear a... a Burt Lancaster has a lust for life. Remember that? They used to say that in the 50s. It didn't mean uh, something negative. It just meant something you really enjoyed life. And if anybody can enjoy life, it's got to be us, right? Strong desire to serve, not second-guess the Lord and others, despite the challenges and the pain. And I don't care how spiritual you are. Krista, if you get cut, you're going to bleed. And you suffer loss, you're going to grieve. And we know that because Jesus got cut. Did he bleed? fixing your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He's despising that. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is pleasant. Uh, emotions based on pleasant happening circumstances. Joy is much more transcendent than that. It's a stability of heart, eye of the hurricane, when you're being crucified. Jesus had joy during crucifixion. Um, I'm not sure the rest of us have that kind of unction, but God will give us what we need to be, what he wants us to be. So that's the overall message. Take this to heart, literally. Not your head, but your heart. Information, gnosis, knowledge. That's and when we, we'll, I'll tell you which one it is as we go through the scripture, this book. Information, gnosis, knowledge is a necessary raw material, but it's not the end point. It's just a starting point, 
right? If you stop with that, you're going to sit soaking sour uh, when it comes to Scripture. Information is a necessary raw material in the process of spiritual growth, but it's not an end in itself. True spirituality is about our hearts, our mind, and our will relating to the one who has saved us where the facts of Scripture have been embraced in our hearts and our lives as transforming, transforming truth that we live at 24-7, not just on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, but on Monday morning, Saturday afternoons, and even on prom night, even on out-of-town business trips. Uh, it's a lifestyle in which we apply the Lordship of Christ to every area of life, not just to church services and Bible trivia contests. You know, it's much more than that. Uh, here's the thing. When churches, and there are a lot of them, 7,000 haven't bowed the knee to Baal, emphasize teaching of Scripture as a foundational thing, the bad news is it's possible for some to be too cool, I call it too superficial, to really care much over time, unless you're talking about something they're really interested in, like the rapture, then they're interested in listening for a couple of weeks. Uh, you don't want to do that. You also have some people who are happy to come listening to talk about the Bible, but so they can get more information to kind of uh, slam dunk their friends at work or their families at family reunions because they know more about Obadiah or First Peter or Second Peter or uh, Acts two or whatever we studied lately than their friends, and that's not the point. Now, this is a a uh, occupational hazard for preachers and teachers and seminary students and Bible college students, and a certain percentage of these cats come out kind of coldly orthodox because they have all this information and they either use it as a cudgel to smack down anybody who doesn't hold their exact doctrinal position on everything or they just generally think they're better than everybody else because they have more information in their heads. Now the good news is after extensive testing by the same doctor that checked out Dr. President Trump this past week, Neither James nor I have any indication of this problem. So, just so you'll know, right? But, uh, yeah, this can happen. The good news is believers who faithfully receive biblical information, gnosis, through their heads, they understand it in context, so they can actually find it and read First Peter, Second Peter, know what it means, and then embrace it as God-given truth in their hearts. That involves the act of the will. You're embracing this stuff as binding on you, not your mother-in-law and your wife, but you. will experience spiritual transformation, but it's like physical growth. It doesn't happen overnight. It's kind of one moment, one thought, one choice at a time. So, I think every Bible should have a warning label attached to it. Uh, this book can be dangerous to your spiritual health if you just process it as factoids, it's just ancient literature. Uh, if our time in the Word, I always say Christians should be in and under the Word. You should be in the Word for yourself, right? Read and study it yourself. We have what we used to call the Steve Skinner Challenge because he would read through First Peter at a sitting, and because he's a slow reader, it took him 15 minutes. It only took me 13 minutes. Now you see how Gnosis can puff you up? I'm better than him. But he's probably reading at more intent level. Uh, we're going to hopefully uh, continue that tradition, and I'm going to challenge you to try to read Second Peter through in a sitting. Yeah, it's only three chapters, uh, but it's all good. But yeah, I would say if your time in the Word as you try to read it, and under the Word as you listen to pastor teachers and other teachers seems stale, routine, boring, irrelevant, 
irrelevant, that should be a red light on your spiritual dashboard, okay? And parents, your most important job is discipling your kids. And if your kids are rolling their eyes when it comes to Bible study here or anywhere else, you got a problem, okay? You need to convince them this is important enough to actually focus on for 45 minutes a week in church, and then hopefully you do a lot more than that at home. For goodness sakes, right? So you don't want to just process selected facts. If it's interesting and everything else, you just kind of phase out. Um, Romans 12 is everybody's favorite verse on spirituality. I love it too. Uh, I urge you, brethren, he's talking to Christians. He's not uncertain whether or not they're Christians when he says this. I urge you, brethren, unbelievers aren't your brethren spiritually, by the mercies of God that you've enjoyed through your salvation, present your bodies a holy living sacrifice acceptable to God. A lot of legalistic Christians won't understand your Christian liberty and things like that, which is your not spiritual Logikos doesn't mean spiritual, logical service of worship. To live for the one who died for you is logical. And then he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And how, you guys, most of you know Romans 12 well enough, don't even look it up. How are we supposed to be transformed? By going to church more and just getting Bible trivia? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind takes it, moves it down to your heart, and your whole thing is transformed. And, you know, God bless Oprah, whether she runs or not, you know. Uh, I mean, I'm not voting for her, but just so you'll know. Um, I only vote for selected TV stars, you know, like Roy Rogers or Chuck Norris. I'd vote for them. But uh, I guess Roy isn't available anymore. But, yeah, this is what Peter is talking about in Second Peter. You need epinosis. You need to process this information as transforming truth and then live consistently with it. This is not mechanical. It's relational, it's not passive, it's active. Nobody else can do this for you. As a believer priest, you've got to do it for yourself. And if you're not prioritizing it, you're probably not going to do it, right? Um, other people, me and James, can help, and a lot of people around here, probably more than we can, can help, motivate, encourage, attempt to feed you, but spiritual growth is your baby. You know, it's your heart. What are you going to do with it, right? Uh, where are you spending your time and your money, you know? It's relational, active dynamic that involves persevering uh, by a believer to receive, believe, and hammer out biblical truth so that we live it, are directed by it, uh, as we abide in Christ. Here's the happy ending. Uh, Jim and Jen, all the messages have happy endings. Everybody's happy when I end them. Watch this. The same sun that can soften some types of clay such that they can then be shaped into something useful can harden other types of clay such that they're only more resistant to being shaped into something useful. Substitute God's word for the sun and your mind and will for the clay. And as we begin this new year, let's uh, rededicate ourselves to fully uh, embrace, feed on, not just at a mental level, but goes through our mind to our will and we embrace it as transforming truth. And uh, it's all about who and what he is, right? And one more thing, and I will stop. Don't you hate it when preachers say, in clo- what is it? Uh, I forgot the funny joke. But anyway, it's a funny joke about preachers going too long, so that made me go even longer. But uh, Hebrews 4.2, uh, talking about the Exodus generation, says the word the Exodus generation heard about taking the promised land. The promised land is not a metaphor for heaven. There ain't no enemies in heaven. 
There aren't terrorists in heaven. The promised land is not a metaphor for heaven. It's a metaphor for the victorious, fruitful, spiritual life. And that whole generation, they weren't all unregenerate. Some of them were, but the vast majority of them probably were regenerate. They went to heaven, uh, but the word they heard, and who's preaching it? Brad and James? No. Moses and Aaron. That's pretty good. And Moses spent a whole lot of his time writing the Bible, you know, in his spare time, you know. Uh, did not profit them because it was not united by faith. They just processed it as gnosis, not epinosis, okay? That's the key. That's the first thing he says. The whole book is based on that premise. And I think most good churches are based on that premise, okay? So let's pray we can kind of keep that in mind as we move through the new year, okay? Father, thank you for speaking to us in the word and not stuttering. And we thank you that uh, this is a relational dynamic. You you give us the everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And now you tell us to take the ball and run with it and to embrace your truth not just as information, but as or your word is not just as information, not just as factoids, but as transforming truth. And I pray that uh, James and I can model that. The elders and deacons will model that, that all of us would realize uh, as we gather to be under the word together or as we're uh, individually in the word ourselves, that this is uh, communion. It's not just a routine and for any of us who have felt like our study has been stale or boring, uh, please uh, convict us that that's a red light, that we're just stopping with information and not engaging in relational transformation with you as you allow us to be fed and to grow on that uh, unchanging truth. I thank you for each one who's here today. Please use your word uh, to transform us to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.